Won't you take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 17? Exodus chapter 17. I was asked to preach this particular sermon this evening, and so I wanted to honor what I was asked to do, and uh, I just pray that God will use the message tonight. Thank you, guys. You did a great job. Enjoyed the praise, uh, worship and praise songs and hymn, and, and also the quartet. You did a great job. Thank, well, it's a trio quartet kind of thing, but it's, but it's very good. Thank you. You know, it's, I always enjoy seeing, you, you that know me know I enjoy seeing a lot of instruments up here, guitars and, uh, you know, bass and pianos and things. I enjoy seeing the instruments. I enjoy seeing people using their talents, their abilities for the Lord, His service. So many have gift are gifted and have talents that never use them for the Lord, and I'm always thankful to see them being used in God's house. Exodus chapter 17, we find Israel, they've just come out of Egyptian captivity, and just, just beginning their wanderings in the wilderness. And so we have Israel camped on one hillside, and the Amalekites are camped on the other hillside. There's a valley between them. Now, this will be their first encounter with the Amalekites as they come out of Egypt. It won't be their last, but it's their first. And the Amalekites will be a thorn in the flesh to them as they try to get through uh, their wanderings there, and they'll, have to, they'll meet them and have to battle them many times. But this is the first time. And notice in verse 8, of Exodus chapter 17. It says, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out fight with Amalek tomorrow, and I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side, the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And may God add his blessings to the reading of his precious word. As we see here in God's word, Israel finds himself facing the Amalekites. Now, Moses knows if they're going to move forward, if they're going to continue on, they're going to have to engage in battle with the Amalekites. So he goes before God to get the battle plan. Now, that's where we need to always go for any plans we have in our lives. And so he goes before God, and God apparently gives him the battle plan. So what Moses does, he selects a general. His general is a young man that we're introduced to here for the first time. as a young man probably in his 20s by the name of Joshua. And so Moses brings him and introduces him into the whole congregation of Israel. And this is the general. He will be the general of the Israelite army. He will be the one who will lead the warriors into battle. Now, as you think about all this taking place in this passage, I want you to notice there's a lot of different hands involved. There's so many hands. You know, it takes lots of hands to fight battles. And so the first hands I want you to understand that are here are the warrior hands. Moses said to Joshua, he said, choose us out. Now, don't miss that. Notice what he didn't say. You know, sometimes you can learn a lot in the Bible by what it doesn't say. He didn't say, go ask for volunteers. Now, there's a reason for that. Because Moses understood that if Joshua went and asked for volunteers, there'd be a lot of well-meaning men who would volunteer to go into battle that really had no battle skills whatsoever. You see, in church, many times we ask for volunteers. Many times people volunteer to do things they have no gifts or abilities to do. You know some of the most miserable people I meet in church 
or people that volunteered to do something years ago that they really weren't gifted to do, really didn't even enjoy doing, but they've been doing it, and, and, they, and, they, and they keep doing it because now they lose face by if they give it up, and, and they're miserable doing things they're not even gifted to do, and you know what? When they're miserable, guess what? They make everybody around them miserable. So he didn't ask for volunteers. And so apparently Joshua goes throughout the camp through the night and selects. And listen, I guarantee you he's going to select the biggest, meanest, strongest looking guys he can find. He's going to let the most skilled archers and swordsmen. Because listen, he's leading them into battle. His life is going to be in their hands. And so that morning there they stand on the side of the hill about to engage in the battle. And so there we see Joshua and all the warrior hands of Israel. They're ready to go. And so Moses sends them down into the valley of Rephidim between the two hillsides. And down the warrior hands go. And in the valley, they engage in hand-to-hand mortal combat with the Amalekites. But the Bible says that Moses went up onto the top of the hill. He did not go into the valley with the warrior hands. He went onto the top of the hill, the leader of Israel. And says so also it takes with him two men, two of his priests, Aaron and Hur. Now, they go up and it says Moses gets on the highest part of the hill. Now, do you think there's a reason Moses went to the highest part of the hill? Well, I think it's this. You see, when you're in the valley in the midst of the battle and the battle is raging, you know, what, you know all you can see? All you can see is the battle. All you can see is the enemy. Somebody needs to be positioned in a high place spiritually that sees not just the valley, not just the battle, not just this enemy, but sees beyond this battle, beyond this victory to the valleys yet to come. So Moses was there positioned on the highest part of the hill so he could oversee and watch what's going on in the valley. So while the warrior hands are fighting in the valley below, the Bible says Moses stands on the hill, it says with his hands raised above his head. Now in international thinking, what is this international symbol for militarily? I surrender. I, you know, you don't have to know the language somebody speaks to understand that means I surrender, right? So, so, so is, he on a, is he surrendering to the Amalekites before the battle even starts? Well, he's surrendering all right, but he's not surrendering to the Amalekites. He's surrendering to Jehovah God. He's saying, God, without you, we can't win this or any other. We surrender our will to your will, our way to your way. Without you, we can't fight these battles. So he stands with his hands in surrender before Almighty God. Worshipful hands held up high before God. So now the worshipful hands of Moses on the hill are high. While his hands are held high, the battle in the valley is going like this. Listen, the Israelites are hacking and whacking, slicing and dicing Amalekites on every hand. They're winning. Amalekites are dying. Israel's winning the battle. The warrior hands of Israel, they're winning. But then something happens to Moses. The Bible says his hands became heavy or they became weary now if you held your hands over your head just like this with nothing in them now the Bible says he had the rod of God in his hand we're not sure exactly how much that weighed but it had some weight but if you held your hands like this with nothing in them at some point if someone doesn't help you your hands and arms are going to begin to bend heavier and heavier and heavier until they feel like pieces of lead and if somebody doesn't help you the best you, you they're going to drop and lower with you that's what started happening to Moses. And as his hands began to lower, those worshipful hands began to lower, the battle changes in the valley. Where once the warrior hands were winning and defeating and killing the Amalekites, now the battle turns. Now Israelites are dying. Israelite blood's being shed in the valley. Israel's now losing the battle. But there stands Aaron and her. Now Moses was a wise leader. He knew not to go up on top of that hill by himself. And he took with him his two priests, Aaron and her. And they're watching, and they're intelligent men. 
they, 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 they figure, they're figuring this out. They, they're realizing that every time Moses' hands, his worshipful hands get a little lower, that more Israelites are dying. And so they decide to do something. I've often wondered what it would have been like if Aaron and her had been free will Baptist. Kathy tells me all the time, she said, David, you think about things nobody else in this world would ever think about. And that may be true, but I mean, had, had, had they been free will Baptist, can I, can, I, can I tell you kind of how it would go? Thank you, believe it will. It would go like this. Aaron would say, her. Her say, what? And Aaron would say, look at Moses. Bless his heart. Her would say, yeah, old man ain't what he used to be, is he? And Aaron would say, yeah, you know, as a time I remember that he could have held his hands up all day without dropping them one bit. And they'd have kept on criticizing Moses until the battle was lost. You see, the easy thing is to do is criticize the leaders when the battle's being lost. The easy thing to do is do that, but they didn't do that. And have you ever wondered how much education do you think they had to have to do what they did that day? Now, I've, I've checked this out, and I, I've, you can't, not only can you not get a degree in this, I couldn't even find one class in it, hand-holding high. You can't, you can't get a degree in it. You can't get, there's not a class in it. You don't have to have a degree in it to do what Aaron and her did that day. Now, I'm not against education. You know that. But I'm telling you, don't wait till you get one to start doing something for the Lord. How much experience do you think it took for them to do what they did that day? I mean, how many times do you feel they had to practice on a dummy before they could do it for real? They looked and saw a need. They saw Moses' worshipful hands become weary hands. So guess what? They had willing hands. And so they put their willing hands on the weary hands of their leader, Moses, and together, hand in hand, they raised his hands back up high as worshipful hands held up high in surrender to Almighty God. And now, once again, the battle turns. And now Israel is once again winning the battle. And when the day was over, the Bible said Joshua had discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. You know, where I grew up in Pea Ridge, Alabama as a boy, we'd have said they whooped a far at them is what they did. They won that day. They won the battle. A lot of hands involved in that battle. Which hands do you think were the most important? I mean, think about it. There's a lot of hands. You got the warrior hands. I mean, come on. Without the warrior hands, somebody's got to fight the battle. Think about this. We're in a spiritual warfare we are in a spiritual warfare today, and I'm telling you, I'm seeing here in things in this country I never dreamed or imagined I'd see in here in my lifetime. The devil is on the rampage, and I'm telling you, he's getting into everything he possibly can, and he's trying to destroy every moral and every value this country has. It's a spiritual warfare, and we need some, we need some warrior hands. You hear me? Some warrior hands that get a hold of God's word and get in the pulpit, and I mean engage in hand-to-hand mortal combat with the enemy and preach God's word. I'm talking about some people who will stand in a Sunday school class and take God's word and teach it verse by verse, systematically, week by week, and get it in people's hearts and minds and lives and engage the enemy. Talking about going out and talking, telling others about Christ, leading people to Jesus and engaging in this spiritual warfare. I'm talking about some warrior hands. They're important. But wait a minute. What about the worshipful hands of Moses? I mean, if our leaders are not surrendered to God, we're in trouble already. Can I tell you, we're in trouble already. But wait, whoa, whoa. 
What about the willing hands? I mean, Aaron and her, they're not warrior hands. They're not the leaders, just a couple of priests. But they had willing hands. You see, you know what they did? They did what they could where they were with what they had to offer. That is all God will ever ask out of any one of us. Just to have willing hands, whatever it may be for, for the battle. Have willing hands. They, they, did, they put their willing hands on the weary hands of Moses until they became worshipful hands again. And that's why the battle was won. But of all those hands, there's one other set of hands I hadn't mentioned yet that actually are the most important hands. I call these the invisible hands, the wonderful hands of the Almighty. You don't see them because they're invisible. But all you can trust me. When God looked down upon Israel and he saw all the warrior hands, all the willing hands, all hands doing what they could do. Can we say it this way? They saw all hands on deck. All hands doing what they could do for the battle. He was pleased and he dropped his hands on that place and that's why they won the battle that day because God's hands came down. There are some of you here tonight that were here the night, the first time I ever preached this sermon. It was on a Wednesday night been probably close to 30 years ago now. Wow, where did that go? 30 years ago. On a Wednesday night, and I shared this text and this sermon here for the very first time. I've now preached this sermon probably just over 800 times in the last 30-something years. And I want to share with you what I shared with our church that night when I shared this text with them. And God did something to us that night. I know I left that service. I was never going to be the same again. And I believe there were others that left that service the same way. I'd been here for a few years as pastor, and I'm in the office one day, and my phone rings. And I answer the phone. It's a young man. He tells me his name. And he said, now, Brother Crow, you probably don't remember us, but you met me and my wife at the state meeting, Tennessee state meeting, and, and we, we talked with you. And I said, I said, yeah, I do remember you. I said, by the way, I, I described to him what he looked like, what she looked like, because I remember I was very impressed with him, very handsome young man, beautiful young lady. I, I, I remember thinking, you know, what, what a great young couple uh, serving God, giving God their lives, you know, at a, at a young age. And, and I said, I, I do remember you. He said, well, I'm, I'm pastoring a church, and, he said, I'm wondering if I could get you scheduled to come preach revival. I said, well, I'll be glad to do that. I said, give me a couple of different options. We'll work something out. So I remember we set a time. It came time. I'd never been to that church, never been to that town. And I drove there. And I remember pulling up to the, in the driveway there at the parsonage behind the church. And the first time I got in my car, and I, that family came as man, his wife, and their two children. They're on the porch, and they step out to greet me. So I just remember, you know, what a beautiful family on the porch. And I, just, I remember again just saying, oh, thank you. Thank you for young families like this serving you. And so the next morning, I preached, started the revival morning, revival that Sunday morning. After the service, I, the pastor and his wife and children, they take me out to eat for lunch, just me and the pastor and his family. So we're sitting there, and about halfway through the meal, I just put my utensils down. I looked at him. I said, okay. What's going on in his church? He, said, he looked at her. She looked at him. He said, what do you mean? I said, I said, no, I just don't do this. I said, listen, when you've been doing this a while, you, you can tell when something's not right. I said, now, I don't know what it is, but it's something not right. I said, I have never had. I said, I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm not trying to. Be, I said, I'm just, I've never had as hard a time trying to preach as I had this morning. It's like, like, it's like something had a stranglehold on that service. And I said, so something not now either you tell me or you can rest assured before this week is over somebody in your church will feel compelled to share it with me. 
They looked at each other and they started crying. He turned back and he said, well, Brother David, we, we hoped you wouldn't find out. We hoped you wouldn't ever have to know that maybe revival would break out and it'd all be taken care of and, and uh, you wouldn't even know. He said, but a few months ago, an issue came up in our church and my wife and I took a very strong stand on that issue. He said, the leaders of our church took an opposing stand and ever since that time, they've done everything they can to run us off from this church. He said, they've cut my salary a couple of times already trying to starve us out. Then he said, we get anonymous notes in our mailbox that say things like this. If you don't leave this church one night while you and your wife and children are sleeping in the parsonage, somebody's going to set fire to it and burn it down. Those that said things like this. If you don't leave this church, we watch and we see when you when your wife and children leave in the car every morning. If you don't leave this church one morning when she starts that car, it's going to explode because someone's going to put a bomb in that car if you don't leave this church. And, uh, I mean, they were broken. I'm sitting there thinking, my, how could anybody be that cruel? Especially people in church, how could they be that cruel? He just said, we're just hoping revival breaks out. Well, I can tell you, it didn't get better Sunday night. I thought it was bad Sunday morning. It was worse Sunday night. I mean, it was just cold. It was just hard. It, I preached till my chest hurt. And I mean, just nothing. Monday night, same thing. Tuesday morning, I believe it was, we were, I was sitting in the floor there in the living room and it was the pastor and his wife and, and their little their children. And I, I think I was actually having a tea party with the kids or something like that. And, you know, when you preach revivals, you get to do fun stuff like that. And uh, I get to do a lot of that. I've been doing this for 24 years now, traveling all the time. But, and there was a knock on the door. And so the pastor, he opens the door. It's a delegation of the church leadership. They step into the living room in the parsonage. And to this young man, his wife, in my presence, and those children, this is what they say to him. They said, we've been noticing the water bill's been being too high here at the parsonage. So we have investigated and determined the cause. You guys are flushing the commode too much. They said, so we have voted a six flush per day minimum or maximum yeah oh three flush per three three flushes per day minimum maximum on this three flushes a day max then he said if you got to go more than that you have to let it build up three flushes a day max I'm sitting there thinking that's the most childish that's the most idiotic thing I've ever heard in my I don't care what you disagree with we don't treat people that way and I'm telling you I, I, I hate to even tell you something started rising up in me now I wish I could tell you it was the Holy Spirit it was a spirit it was listen the redneck started climbing out I, I'm, I'm, that's a stu- I'm thinking you don't treat people this I hate to even tell you what I did the bathroom was right off the living room so I just got up, I walked over, left the door. And I didn't use this, so don't run ahead of me, okay? Left the door open. I went in there. I flushed it. Let it fill up. I flushed it again. Six times I flushed it and let it fill up. I stepped out and I said, that's two days worth. Take it out of my check. Now I could tell you that made them mad, but that'd be an understatement. The leader of that bunch was a big man. And, and listen, he come over, got, put his finger. I thought he finna whip me all over his house. His veins popped out in his mouth. And he, he couldn't even, he was so mad he couldn't talk. He was just, and finally, he never got what he spins around and stomps out. They all fall and they slam the door. They get in the car, they sling gravel, and we're leaving. Now, I wish I could tell you revival broke out in that church that week. 
I thought it had been bad through Monday night. Oh, I, it's not even, listen, now Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, I mean, I'm coming in, and listen, I'll start toward them. I, you know, I'm gonna make them shake my hand. I'm gonna make them acknowledge, you know, you're not, there's no reason to treat people that way. And, and, and I go, listen, they would turn and go the other way. They wouldn't even shake my hand. And every, you hear me, Sunday morning through Friday night, every invitation, I, I, when I started the invitation, that pastor and his dear wife, were the, they would get up and just both fall in the altar, praying and their hearts out there. And I'd say, and every time I'd say, now folks, your pastor and his wife are up here in the altar, pray, listen, once some of you just come up here, just put your arm around them, kneel, kneel beside them, and put your arm around them and let them know you're there. Can I tell you, in seven services, not one person, that one person got out and walked up and sat, knelt beside him, put their arm around him. I'd intended to get up and go home Saturday morning, but Friday night before service, I, I had my stuff packed. I, I said, Pastor, I'm feeling pretty good. I think I'm just going to drive on home tonight. I'll be late, but I, I'm just, listen, I just want to get back here. You hear me? I just want to get back to couple. I want to get back to people that love me and my wife and my children. I want to get back where people loved us and shook our hands and hugged our necks and kissed us on the cheek. I just, <laughs> but when I got back for a couple of weeks, I'd try to read my Bible and I'd just see their faces. And Kathy woke me up in the night several times, said I was screaming. And I dreamed that somebody had set fire to the parsonage in them in it. I dreamed that somebody put a bomb in that precious girl's car and she'd wake me up and the bed would be wet where I'd sweated. I couldn't get them out of my mind. I couldn't get it off of my heart. And after a few weeks, I was in my office in there one day and I was reading here in Exodus chapter 17. And I saw Moses again there on the top of that mountain and began to think about this. You know, it wasn't Moses' fault. The battle was being lost. Moses, listen, even though he was probably 80, he was still a strong man physically. He wasn't weak. He wasn't a bad leader. He's probably one of the greatest leaders that's ever lived. He hadn't sinned. He wasn't sinning in his life. And that was why the battle was being He just got weary. He just he was doing everything he knew to do, but he got weary. And well, can I just tell you, I don't care who you are, what kind of gifts and abilities you have, all of us sometimes get weary and well do it. And I began to see Moses there, and it began to I began to it began to hit me. If Moses hadn't had Aaron and her hold up his hands. And then God put on my heart, he wanted us. He wanted me to share with our church about that young couple, that young family. He wanted us to be an Aaron and a her to them. And I got excited about that. And I came that Wednesday night nearly 30 years ago now and I shared this text I just shared with you basically very similar to the way I shared it here that, that Wednesday night. When I shared it, I shared this story about this, this passion. I had told no one. I, to, I told my wife, Kathy, I had told no one else about it until that, until that night. And as I shared it, I could see the looks of, of, of horror on people's faces and, and the shock and that, that anybody could be that cruel. Uh, especially, let me tell you something. People who do that, you'd, be, you'd have a hard time convincing me they're saved. You listen, we, none of us perfect, but I'm telling you, that, that is a despicable kind of evil. 
And I shared that with our church. And this is what I remember saying to them. I said, church, if we don't do something, we're going to lose that young family. Because you see, when I left that night after church, they stood in their driveway, tears running down their faces, and they said, Brother David, we've already told God, and we're going to be telling you that if God, when he releases us from his church, we're not taking another church. If this is what, is this what you get, if this is how you treat when you're a pastor, we don't want it. And so we're not taking another church. We're going to get out of ministry. I, I did the best I could to encourage them there. I had prayer with them, and I left. And I said, church, if somebody doesn't do something, we're going to lose them. And I said, I'm so tired of us losing some of the best and the brightest we have. And I said, church, will you let me do something? Will you let me call that guy, that young man, and, and invite him and his family here? And while they're here, we'll pay their way to get here. We'll keep, give them a place to stay while they're here. And, and it just and let them be in some services with us. And, and, and I said, and I, I remember as a church, I just, I want to bring them here because I said, I want you to love on them like you love on me and Kathy and our kids. I want you to show them there are people who still love God's servants, God's preachers and their families. So will you let me do that? I'll never forget, center section in the back, this side, James Arnold Abrams stood up. He said, Brother David, this is the greatest thing I've heard. Then he said, I just want to know, why haven't we already been doing this? And I said, it's my fault, Brother James. I'm the pastor. I should have known better. I didn't know. I said, but I know better now, so we're going to do better. He pulled out his wallet. I don't never had much money that I knew of. And he opened it up, and he dug down. He had a bill folded up, and it was a $100 bill. And he said, well, will this $100 buy my meal while they're here? And I said, oh, Brother James, that'd be great. Thank you so much. And I remember one by one, people began raising their hands and standing up. When they come, will you, will you let us spend some time with them? Will you bring them to our house? Can we feed them a meal? Can we take them out? Can, all, over the, all over the auditorium that night, one by one. Some people that they rarely volunteered to do anything. But they found a place that night. They found a niche that night where they could do something. Like, I remember Carrie Ledbetter was still a single boy then. It was assistant manager over here, I guess was at the Hampton Inn. And uh, remember he said, Brother Dave, we just got the new suite finished over at the Hampton Inn. He said, he said what if I could get that for the church at, at maybe half price, you know. And I said, well, keep, that's good, Carrie. Come on, come on, you're getting there, come on. And, and, and one by one, and, and listen, I came that night thinking we were going to help that family. Little could I have known what it was going to do to me and others there that night. Because I've never been the same when I got a hold of this. Can I just tell you when revitalization will come? When we can get our eyes off ourselves and get our eyes on others who need help and encouragement, that's when revitalization will start. Because I'm just saying God honors it when we get our eyes off of us and our things and our stuff and our problems and our issues and get our eyes on the needs of others. And when we get our eyes on them, we see those needs and we feel compelled and we want to help and do something about that. Now, I've learned some things through these years. And I've learned this lesson well. God blesses when you get your eyes off yourself and on others and desire to encourage others. And by the way, can I just tell you, when you're in, 
focusing on encouraging others, God just kind of takes care of your stuff. And you don't get discouraged nearly as much when you're focusing on encouraging others. That's probably the greatest thing that's needed in our churches today is for us just to learn how to get our eyes on others. Well, that night, our church, we turned our eyes off ourselves. I said, can I call him? Can I invite him? Well, yeah. I said, well, I'm going to call him tonight. He, I said, it's bad. He's probably going to come tomorrow. I don't know if you remember or not, but I called him the next day, and I told him what we were going to do. He would, listen, he was crying so bad, he lost his composure. He couldn't even talk. He couldn't believe that people that didn't even know him wanted to do this for him. I said, what do we do? When can you come? <laughs> he said, it's tomorrow too soon. <laughs> I said, no, it's already set up. I had Carrie go ahead and book the room, and uh, some ladies had already set up for some meals and some things of that nature. I remember when I met him over at the Hampton Inn there, we went in, boy, that suite was nice. I hadn't been in there. There's a big two-room suite, jacuzzi, tub. I mean, goodness, it was nice and pretty big. And we walk in there, and those, that young couple, they I mean, their eyes are big as silver dollars. She says, Brother Crow, we've we never been in this nice a place. I said, and I'm thinking, yeah, I never stayed in this nice a place. And uh, she said, this is bigger as the house we live. I said, yeah, I know, I've been to that house. I said, by the way, as long as you're here, you can flush your commode all you want to. Flush it when it don't even need it. Catch up. And that week, for several days, I've never been as proud of people as in my life as I was of people of this church right here. They loved on them. I let him preach. If you remember, I let him preach on that Sunday night they were here. I didn't know if he could preach. I never heard him. I figured he probably could, but I didn't know. He preached. I remember we had a great service. People came to the altar. It's been a long time since he's seen anybody come to the altar when he preached. When they finally left to go back, they stood in my driveway over here. Tears running down their face, and that's what they said. They said, but David, you'll never know what this has meant to us. We've told God, and we want you to know that if he'll release us from that place, we're not going to get out of ministry. If he'll still have us, we'll go and pastor whatever, wherever he wants us to go. I had prayer with them as they pulled away. I said, thank you, Lord Jesus. <laughs> Satan didn't get that family. He called me not long after that. He tried out at a church. They'd gotten 100% vote to go. So they were going. He took that church. Can I tell you? He's still at that same church today. They're working on their third building program. Every new building they build, he called me. He said, you've got to be the first one to preach revival there. So I, I work it out where I can go and be with him. And, and listen, when I, of course, you know, the folks here, if they remember, and I'm sure you probably some of you do, you know, I, I tell people when we were here, you know, we had a, a lot of ladies that went kind of heavy on the lipstick and makeup, and they left to smear it on you, you know, kiss you on the cheek, hug your neck. And, and I said, me and Kathy, kids, we'd go home with lipstick and makeup on us all the time, every service. And, and, and so I'd, I always tell folks, listen, with these, these folks coming in, smear some lipstick and makeup on them. And uh, thankfully, none of the men did that, but, you know. Because <laughs> I'm going to tell you, people need to know we care. They need to know we love them. We don't need to be untouchable. You hear me? We're not above them because they're discouraged and we're not. 
We're not, we're not better than them because maybe their church is not growing as fast as our church. We're not better than them because we're maybe at a better place in, in life right now than they are. We're all in this thing together. And we've got to learn to have willing hands to do whatever God wants us to do for the battle. And what a joy it's been to go and spend time. And now those children have grown up and are out of college now and have families and kids of their own now. And, and what a joy it's been to see that. And, and then as we brought others and kind of made a ministry of it here, and we brought others, we brought in some, some international missionaries one weekend and just did some nice things for them. We, our camp meeting, we'd have Uppercome Camp, we'd pay the way of some discouraged pastors and wives. We'd pay their expenses to come, put pay for their hotel, feed them every meal while they were here, just do everything we could. Listen, we spent some, we spent some hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars. We, we gave some hours of our time, some days of our time, but I'm telling you, some of the best investments we ever made. We invested in people. We invested in God's people. We invested in God's servants. That's the best investment we could ever make. Sometimes people just don't need our criticism. They don't need us condemning them. Well, they've probably sinned. They just need some willing hands put on their weary hands and hold them back up high together until they're rested and they can go again on their own. Going from church to church for these 24 years now, I've been in churches of all sizes in our denomination, from one side of things to the other, one coast to the other, Canada to Mexico. But you know one thing I find the same, everywhere I go are people with weary hands. Many times it's the pastor and his family, the staff and their family, school staff and their families, or other leaders in their churches. And there's always some there. There's always. And by the way, just because a guy's got a big church doesn't mean he doesn't ever need encouraging. He probably needs it more because he's got a whole lot more people to deal with. And I found it. Everybody responds well to encouragement. I've never felt like I have a lot of what I call real preacher gifts. Maybe I'm a good storyteller and I like stories and people like stories and that kind of thing. But, but I feel like God put on my heart years ago to love people. Brother Seth, I sat with you. Before you, the week before you officially became pastor here at lunch, and I told him, I said, listen, if you'll love those people, love those people and be there for them when they need you, and preach the word, I said, they'll love you, and they'll love your family, and they'll support you and your family. And I said, God will do great things in your midst, and I believe that with all of my heart. And he'll do that in your church, in your church. He wants to do that. He wants to revitalize you. He wants to revitalize your church, your people. That's God's... Listen, he doesn't want to see us discouraged all the time. And the reason we have so many that are is we just don't have enough Aaron and hers. You see, if you really knew my heart, I mean, if you knew down deep in my heart what I really am, I've never have wanted to be any kind of a Moses. I never have wanted to be the guy up front, the guy in charge. That's, that's not my heart. I tell people I'm just an Aaron and a her wannabe. I want to be the Aaron and her. I want to be the guy holding up the hands of the Moses. 
so they can be encouraged and can go on and continue on and do great things for God. You see, they went on beyond that battle that day. That wasn't, that wasn't the first one, but that, that wasn't the last battle. They had many more battles, but they made it through the wilderness because they kept on being faithful. One battle after the next, one valley after the next, they kept on being faithful until they made it to the promised land that God had promised them. And tonight, I don't know what you came here expecting. Revitalization, I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but I think we've overcomplicated it, just to be honest with you. We've tried to come up with all these theories and graphs and, and, and programs and things, how to revive. I'm, I'm just telling you, when we really learn to love people and encourage people and keep our eyes on others and off ourselves, I don't think we'll have to worry about revitalization. I think that'll take care of itself. It'll happen on its own. Because you know what? When you, when you get your eyes on others, for one thing, it makes, you, it makes you dislike them less. You know what I'm talking about? There's some people you may not particularly, maybe don't hate them or you don't like them real bad, but you just don't like them a little bit. But can I tell you, when you focus on them and begin to see what their needs are, begin to find out they're facing some things you may didn't even know about, it makes you feel, realize that you got a lot more in common with them than you thought. And soon you realize, you know, why did you ever dislike them to start with? Why did you ever avoid them to start with? And sadly, that sometimes are people in our church that, that we do that way. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I've seen it work time and time and time and time again. And if you want to ask Ken and Brad, they, they'll tell you this, this is what I hammer. I hammer in our department, I hammer on our staff. We gotta love people, we gotta be there for people. That's why we're all killing ourselves traveling. I told somebody I'm not that old, I'm just high mileage. I'm afraid my miles gonna run out for my warranty. And I've flown almost three million miles since I was pastor of this church 24 years ago. I've been in hundreds and hundreds of churches. But it's not cause it's my job. It's cause that's what God called me to. I would have never left this place had he not called me to that. I wasn't looking for a job. I wasn't looking for a place. But he called me. And for, the, for these 24 years, I've done the best I know how to love our people, all of them. Some of them took a little while to love. Some of them you have to work on. But you love them. And it starts in your own church. And then when your church gets to where you're in a good place, then that church, you begin to get your eyes on the needs of others around you. You know what? People will notice that kind of thing a lot quicker than they'll notice the revival meetings you have and the conferences you have. They'll notice what you do to help people in the community around you. That's what will make an impression with the people that don't go to church. And the people who maybe once were in church but got disillusioned with it are now not in church. They notice those kind of things. And they notice how we treat each other. They notice how we help each other or not. Encourage each other or not. And if we don't think that's happening, then you need to watch. You just need to watch around you. I want to do something tonight. I guess it's kind of an invitation. And I didn't ask about this, but hope it's okay who's in charge 
I am. Wow, that's dangerous. <laughs> I, want, I want every every preacher, you don't have to be a pastor, but every preacher, if your wife's here, if your children are here, I want you all to come up here right now and just stand here in front with me, please. Every preacher, every pastor, every any preacher, if you're a preacher, you don't have to be a pastor. Maybe it's evangelist. Maybe you just, just you're licensed or ordained. It doesn't matter. If you got you, your wife, here, come on, just, just kind of come across the front here. Come across the front here. Sometimes people see guys like us, me and Brad and Ken, some of those guys that we get to travel and be in a different church every week, and, you know, and they think it's so glamorous to fly. And, you know, that just tells me they don't fly much if they think it's glamorous. And, uh, but they think, I think we got, you know, we're, we're kind of the heroes. But can I tell you, guys like me are not the heroes. Uh, I feel like anybody could do what I do. I, I, just, I don't know why God lets me do what I do, but he lets me do it. And uh, you know who my heroes are? Right here are my heroes. Right here. These are my heroes. You know why? Because they're faithful to what God's called them to do day in and day out. They get up and do it when it's easy, they get up and do it when it's difficult. They get up and do it when they feel like it and they get up and do it when they don't feel like it. They do it when somebody appreciates them for it and when nobody appreciates them for it. They do it when somebody notices they're doing it and when somebody, when nobody notices they're doing it. They keep being faithful. These are my heroes serving in places sometimes where they're not going to get their name up on a marquee somewhere. They might not be a Moses. But they're faithfully serving God who called them to that place and that position, whatever it may be. These are my heroes. These are the ones I want to encourage. These are the ones I want to put my hands on and hold their hands up high before Almighty God so that the battles can be won in their lives and in their ministries. And so to close this part of the service and then if they want to, whatever they need to do after we do this, they can do. I want all of the rest of you, all of you that would, come up and let's just gather around all of this here in front and back behind them. Just right now, come on. We don't have to have music playing. You come on and, and, and listen. If your pastor's here, you, his family, you get around them. If not, you get around some of these others. Just get up, I want you to get up close to them where you can get your hand on them. You can get your hand on them. Get up close to them. You can come in front of them here and get in the back, back behind them. Some of those there, and come in here in the front. Just get where you can get your hands on them there. Get, get up close to them. I just think God's pleased when he looks down and sees us all together, our hands, hands on each other and all together, all together. I'm going, to, I'm going to leave the prayer aloud. If you want to pray, if you want to pray aloud, that's fine. If you want to pray, your thoughts, however God hears it either way, you pray as I pray now. Lord Jesus, I love you. God, thank you for these precious servants. Oh, these dear precious men and women and their families, their children. God, they're, they're my heroes. Lord, I, I appreciate them. They're faithful. Their faithfulness, Lord, many times when they get no recognition, 
and very little praise and appreciation. They keep on faithfully going. They keep on going to the hospital and the nursing home and the shut-ins. And Lord, they keep on faithfully preaching and teaching your word. They keep on faithfully playing and singing your word. God, thank you for them. Oh God, they're my heroes. And God, don't let a day pass that you don't remind me to pray for them wherever I am. Lord, that I can put my hands, hold my willing hands. Lord, I'm just an errand and a her wannabe. God, let me put my willing hands on their hands and raise them together. And together raised up, hands held high in worship and surrender before you so that the battle, so that the warrior hands and the worshipful hands and all those hands can be faithful so that then your wonderful hands will come down on this place, will come down in their church and in their services and in their lives and in their ministries. And God, I just believe, I will believe with all of my heart, this is the key to revitalization. We just start loving each other like we should, start helping each other like we should and get our eyes off of us and get our eyes on somebody else. And Lord, not to criticize them or find fault, but Lord, to get our eyes on them to see what their needs are, what I can do to encourage them, what I can do to help my pastor and his family, what I can do to lift them up today, what I can do <laughs> to encourage them today when they may be discouraged because somebody just chewed them out or somebody just told them off or somebody just came and said, we're leaving, we're leaving here. God, so God touch the hearts of everybody here. Don't you let us leave here the same as we came in. Lord, I left the service that Wednesday night 30, 30 years ago and I've never been the same since. It changed the way I look at ministry. It changed the way I look at people and the way I look at church. And Lord, I don't ever get over that. God, you bless these families. Bless these here that have come and put hands on them. These are the, these are the cream of the crop, Lord. These are the faithful ones right here in this place. So I'm dedicating them to you, Lord. And I'm praying that all together we've got all our hands raised high and surrender to you. And when hands get weary, Lord, that there'll be an abundance of willing hands, an army of Aaron and her to come along and put our weary, willing hands on those weary hands and hold them back up high. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.